Amen. Kira, good morning. You all good this morning? I have my new glasses and you look so wonderful. I'm going to keep wearing them all the time. I never realised how amazing you guys looked. Um, just before I start into the message this morning, uh, Aaron McKevitt was going to be speaking, but he's not been well this week. And so uh, I get the opportunity to do another message. And I had some verses out of James chapter 1 that I reluctantly let go to fit in the four sessions. So I'm going to pick up a couple of them. But uh, a few people have mentioned again, I try not to get you all sidetracked, but I, I want to give you a very succinct difference between hope and faith, which I mentioned last week. So it's a whole message or a number of messages in itself, which I hope to do at some stage, and I have to watch all the puns in this. But So let me just say this. Hope comes from God, it's given to us, so is faith. The key difference is, if you're hoping for something, it may or may not be from God, It doesn't become faith until God clearly gives you a word. That's the difference. Now, this is all over the scriptures. The classic case, an easy, quick example, is Peter getting out of the boat and he was rebuked by Jesus for his lack of faith. We must understand this point. Before Peter got out of the boat, Jesus had said to him, Come. He had had a very clear word. We can go back through, and I need to get into my message. Hannah was hoping for a child. She carried that hope for years. Finally, God came along and gave her a word. At that point, it turns to faith. She needs to stand on it. Abraham and Sarah, another example, hoping, 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 then against hope for a child. Where they got told off is because God sent the angels and said to them, you are going to have a child. At that point, it's meant to change to faith. And they, like so many of us, staggered and wavered in that. The difference is just this. Hope is a good thing. It's biblical. We aren't expected to exercise faith until we get a very clear word from God. So hopefully that helps you in your day-to-day life. Okay, so now into James chapter 1, and we're going to pick up verse 19. And it says this, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, as practical and wise as the sounds, it is very, very challenging. Um, the fact is that we have got to listen carefully before we speak and not to get angry. And the whole thing about this is that it's challenging because it cuts right across our fallen human nature. As we all understand, we have two natures. One's a redeemed nature. The other's a fallen nature. They're both in us. And a verse like this cuts across our fallen human nature. Now, what James is calling us to do, requiring us to do, is place a restraint on some key areas of passion 
that often come to the surface in us immediately and can get us into a lot of trouble. He tells us to listen carefully, to think before speaking, and to deal with our anger. Guys, that's a tough call. It really is. I, um, not long before I became a Christian, I was, I drove a tow truck for years as part of my business and I was driving the truck and a guy behind me was really annoying me. He was right up behind me and when I slowed down, he'd slowed down behind me, I pulled over to let him pass. At one stage, he pulled in behind me. I got really, really upset Now, I wasn't a believer at the time. I am going to say that it was about 12 months before I became a Christian. So I finally pulled my truck over and he pulled in behind me. So I was out of the truck. My wife was sitting in the truck uh, with me and I jumped out of the truck and I ripped open his car door. I was so angry with him and full of froth and anger and all that and said, what do you think you're doing? What's the matter with you? Now, the guy was in his late 70s at least and he got such a shock. He was absolutely terrified and his wife burst into tears. And he said to me, I saw you were a tow truck, thought you would know your way around, so I was following you to get a chance to stop with you to ask some directions. (laughs) Now imagine, even in my unredeemed state, how I felt. But here's my key point, and this comes into our message. I got back into my tow truck and I said to my wife, seriously, I'm becoming an animal. I have no control. I've just done the most horrendous thing and there's nothing I can do about it with my anger. Now, here is the issue. Very few people achieve these things on their own. But what Jesus said to us is, with man this is impossible, but what? With God, all things are possible. And there is the key. When we pick up on the statement that James is saying, we have to understand that as followers of Christ, we have life-changing power, not only that is available to us, it is birthed within us. It's absolutely amazing. Because these requirements are so counter to our natural state that all they will do is condemn us if we try to overcome them in our own strength. It doesn't work like that. See, here's a major stumbling block with Jesus and the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers so understood what it was like to see the glory of God come and fill the temple. It was awe-inspiring. It was amazing. It was just, as I've said, it's a, if, it's, if we use the word awesome for it, we should never use the word for anything else. Now, don't be condemned by that because the word awesome's kicked around everywhere and I believe it's robbed God of one key word we could describe him with. But it was such an awesome, majestic show of power and holiness and God's presence that they could never believe and still can't today if they're unredeemed, that God would put that in the human flesh. 
they wouldn't, when they went to the temple, they couldn't look upon God's glory. And then they say, you're telling me to Jesus that God is going to put his spirit in a human being. You've got to be kidding me. We have seen the power of God's spirit. There is no way he's going to put that in a human being. And he did and he has. And if you're a born again Christian today, that glory and that power resides in you. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it brings major transformation to us. It brings God's empowering presence into our life. And then we can deal with this stuff. We can deal with our anger. I hardly ever get angry in a way that causes me to regret my actions today. That's taken nearly 40 years to get there, but it did start happening very, very quick and early in my Christian life. I promise you it did, because God went to work on that area in my life very quickly, and it got me into a lot of trouble in the past. See, we can be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we do have to cooperate with him. He doesn't do it against our will. But we have the transforming power of life to change the things in us that we hate or despise or are ashamed of. We really do. So back to James's point. Let's consider being quick to hear first from a perspective of our relationship with God. Because it requires that we first hear God's word, we apply it to ourselves, and then we speak. So rather than rush into any given situation with our opinions, our defenses, our anger, we are to first pause, consider what the word God says about this, and then apply that. And I want to give you some examples because there's some amazing practical examples. But if you're about to slander somebody in your anger, you remember that the Word of God tells us to put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from our mouth. That's Colossians 3 verse 8. So you check yourself and you don't do it. If you're about to lie to somebody, to tell a lie, you remember that Colossians 3 verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So you stop and you think of a better way to respond without lying. Now the Holy Spirit helps us do this. And this is what we're called to do. I love the example which I'm going to give you of Paul and the high priest. It's in Acts 23. But we read where he's brought before the council of the Pharisees and he argues that all he has been doing is serving God and being obedient to God by proclaiming the gospel. And the high priest orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. Now... I've been struck on the mouth a few times. It's not very nice. And Paul is angry. So this is what he says. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said to Paul, 
Do you reveal God's high priest? And Paul says this. I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now we need to get this because when I first read this, I was on Paul's side. He's been called in for a hearing and he gets struck on the mouth. And he's referring to the fact that under Jewish law, any prisoner is innocent before guilty. And that's where the English law got all this from and a whole lot of other things are all biblical principles. That he is innocent before guilty and only after he or she has been pronounced guilty can they come under a sentence of punishment and it's got to be appropriate to the crime. So the Jews were not allowed to abuse prisoners and especially not before they've been properly tried and found guilty. And so, but when Paul finds that he has abused the high priest and and he honestly didn't know it was the high priest, he checked his behaviour by going where? To scripture and says, oh, I didn't realise he was the high priest and the scripture forbids me to abuse or criticise or whatever the high priest. Incredible. He's in pain. He's in humiliation. He's been whacked in the mouth, which is against Jewish law. He hasn't even had his case heard yet. Yet he checks his behavior and rebukes himself according to scripture. There's the pattern. There it is right there. That's what we need to be quick to hear. And then slow to speak and slow to anger. I have done a lot of mediation work in my business. It's something that I love doing. But frequently it amuses me. And by the way, if you were sitting in mediation between me and someone else, I'm sure you'd see it with me. I just happen to be in the neutral corner, so to speak. But frequently I hear somebody say something and the wounded party hears something so different than what I heard and jumps to a judgment or jumps to anger or jumps to a response. See, we're both hearing the same statement, but this person's hearing it either through bitterness, through pain, through uh, their own self-justification or whatever. It's not always negative, but it means they cannot or will not accept that the other person has a point. And James is saying to us, this doesn't work in the kingdom of God. It won't work for you. It won't work for any of us. Each side should be willing to hear the other. We have to train ourselves to find out where Jesus is working and get out of the right, wrong game. And this is not just for marriage, but here's a wonderful key for marriage. Instead of fighting and arguing to, define, to find out who is right, ask the question, what is Jesus saying here? Where is Jesus working here? What would Jesus say to us? Amazing, go through the New Testament and, and come and tell me if I've missed anything. Every single dispute brought to Jesus where there were two sides to the party, he never made a ruling on right or wrong. He always went to their heart attitude and spoke to that. Well, 
Here's the bad news for us all. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. I know it's good news, but it's difficult news. Let's, let's call us that. See, the solution comes in any disputes we're in and anything we're working on, whether it's work, whether it's home, family, all sorts. The solution comes, guys, when we get out of the right, wrong game and apply ourselves to discerning where is the Holy Spirit working here and I am going to cooperate with him even if it comes against me. See, if we're going to govern our tongues, first we've got to govern our passion. And it is interesting, and again, this is where I can be likely to be sidetracked, so I'm careful. In the King James Version, it uses passion in a very negative way. Now, today we're all looking for people to have passion, and I agree with that. But the King James says, passion rots the bones. Now, it's using the word in a totally different context, and you all understand language has involved. But what the King James is saying is you drive yourself for the wrong things, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. So passion is both a strength and a weakness for any of us. God doesn't care how passionately we believe in something but if it doesn't line up with his will and his ways, he, then it opposes him and there is no neutral territory with him in these things. Most of the things of what we say, and here's my life story anyway, most of the things of what we say in anger, we will regret afterwards because we haven't first centred our hearts and minds on the kingdom of God first. And we'll regret it. There is a place for anger, but it has to be righteous anger, and that means getting our fallen nature out of the way, getting our defences, our pet theories, and hates, our grievances, and our past hurts out of the way. And this takes a lot of work, even when we employ the Holy Spirit. So it causes James to say in verse 20 that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Most of it comes out of our fallen nature and that will never produce anything of value, particularly not in our relationships together, particularly not in those areas. I want to suggest that God's able to work far better with most of us when we're in a place of humility and calm than when we're in a place of anger. Solomon said this, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Augustine, um, when in an argument with another preacher, he was in an argument with another preacher and the other preacher kept shouting, hear me, hear me. It's like sometimes looking in a mirror for me anyway. I mean, I know it doesn't apply to any of you. And Solomon, uh, sorry, Augustine says this, neither let me hear you or you me. Let us both hear the apostle. Solomon's saying, don't let me hear you. Don't let you hear me. Let's go to what the apostle Paul says in this interest. Go to the word of God. Let's hear him. And let's line our behavior, our attitude, our character up with that. 
And we would do so well if we develop this art and skill. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit with our cooperation. I want to shift a little but stay in the same vein. I spoke to a Bible study group last week, a group of leaders about communication. And this is now a huge issue for all that wants to be heard. And here's a challenge for all of us, and especially those in public ministry, but not only. We are now speaking to audiences of people who see professionals over and over again on TV, on social media, on all sorts of places. We're seeing professional, elegant, champion speakers. So we've got to upskill. Because the trouble is everybody is talking at everybody else, but very few are listening. And back in the 70s, Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song called The Sounds of Silence. And it was prophetic then, but nowhere near as prophetic as it is today. In fact, I'm in the process of doing a whole message on the song. I'd love to play it all to you because I love the song, but I haven't got time. But I'm just going to pick up one verse. So this verse says this. In the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. People talking without speaking. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never share. No one dare disturb the sounds of silence. Now, I just want to pick up a couple points out of this. There's so much other stuff there that will wait for another time. But when people are talking without speaking, what they're saying is people are talking all the time, but they're basically saying nothing because they're speaking from a very uninformed basis. If you want to be informed about any topic at all, get yourself saturated with the Word of God because His wisdom flows, His understanding flows, His empowerment flows, and you will bring to the world's conversation something that is life-changing. Now, not all of us are speakers. You might be a writer, There's whole sorts of avenues. You might be into creative arts that can go all the way through. But all those things, if we engage the power of God, we have the power to change lives with our speech and whatever else it is. Then it says people hearing without listening. See, what we're often doing when people are speaking is just waiting for our turn to talk. I want to repeat that. We're just standing there, shut off, waiting for our turn to talk. Why don't these people be quiet and let the wise man speak? And this is what James is telling us to stop doing. This verse highlights how modern society has gone in a direction that no one really cares about or more importantly pays attention to the content of what we both hear and say. Now, let's make this really prophetic, guys. Let's take this into cell phones. People talking, people 
Where are we? People talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. You can be in a whole crowd of people and everybody is looking down on their cell phones. Nobody's talking to one another. Nobody is communicating with one another. We're all saying things. We're making responses, but it's doing nothing. It's building nothing. It's creating nothing. It's not using the skills and it's certainly not building community or interactions in the way that God is trying to train us to do with power and effectiveness. See, we're saying things to everybody else except the people around us. We have no awareness of what's going on with the people around us and the passion of the Holy Spirit is we have been trained and equipped and empowered to speak into what or minister into or whatever into whatever current environment we're in and we've got our heads stuck in the cell phone talking to somebody over the other side of the world about what we're eating for lunch. Now, I use cell phones. I use modern technology. I text. I get on Facebook. I have fun. I do all of those things. But I am not prepared to let them squander the opportunity to minister into the area around me in the real present time that has real present people in it. All my clients, and there's people here in this room that spend time with me, will know that when I'm with you, I will never be interrupted by my cell phone. I won't allow it to happen because the moment I'm spending with you at the time is too important. And the calls can wait. We all have answer phones on our phones. See, we're talking without speaking. We're not hearing. We're not listening. And we're losing the opportunities that the Holy Spirit creates for us on a daily basis. Guys, we've got to do better than this. Don't throw your cell phone away. Just be like the Apostle Paul. I will use all things, but I will be mastered by nothing except the Spirit of the living God. The truth is that in reality, only Jesus gives life meaning. But to receive that, we have to live life in his way. And we can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. Without Jesus, people look for meaning in entertainment or in drugs or in alcohol and on the list goes. Sadly, they're looking for meaning where there really isn't any. And this promotes the selfish view that we only have one life So we're going to do what we think is best for me and that's it. And as Christians, we can't afford to be like that. We're not called to be like that. We are here to reflect something very, very different. And coming back to communication, we have to know what it is we believe. We have to know what it is we stand for and we have to know why. And I don't trust myself to come to that conclusion. So I embrace the spirit of the living God and bury myself in his word to find out what it is I have been created to believe and what it is I have been created to do in the short time I have on this planet. So guys, we've got to upskill. So we don't get defeated on our doorstep by the JWs and the Mormons. 
or hide when they're coming because they just tie us up in knots. And that we don't get captive into vain philosophies and empty speculations. I'm taking this from Corinthians. See, we're the ones who have the truth and the light, guys. We're this temple that the Spirit of the living God has poured himself into. You are. You, and I mean you as individuals. I can see you all so much clearer today. I mean you. One more verse in the same context. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And I can only say again, as I've said again and again over these four sessions with James, Christianity is not a religion. It is a way of life. And what we are to, and when we embrace it, who we are comes before what we do. See, I know we have rituals. Some of them are great. We have things like baptism, things like communion. There's others that go into that. They're all good things because they remind us regularly of what Jesus has done for us. But James is making it clear that religious observances on their own don't meet God's expectation for the Christian faith. Unfortunately, James just happens to start at the hardest part, which is about keeping our tongue in check. May God help us. It's impossible, yet with God, what? All things are possible. James later says that no one can tame the tongue. He's talking about individuals, guys. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Well, that acquits me as being guilty because I know mine has been. I know I'm guilty of that. What hope have we? Jesus. What other hope do we need? None. The power of the Holy Spirit can control the tongue. In our humanity, and our flesh, and our fallen nature, we can't. So I'm going to finish on the good news again. Romans 8 verse 11 says this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm going to repeat that. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, now guys, It takes some power to raise somebody from the dead. It doesn't just happen. So if the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to raise Jesus, and he's raised many others from the dead, Paul's making this point here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, we could meditate on that all this week. That power dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. This is not a lie, guys. This is a promise. Through his spirit who dwells where? In you. 
this amazing Holy Spirit which came upon the temple after all these poor animals had been sacrificed. What a lot of people miss, by the way, when you realize those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals were sacrificed, the people did eat them. They had a big party and a big celebration, so that might make you feel a little better. It might not. But anyway, I'm not getting into all of that with you. But here is the issue that we need to understand. After all the sacrifice, they hoped the presence of God would come upon the temple. And when the presence of God did, they all fell on their faces in shock and adoration and fear and trembling and seeing the holiness and the majesty of God. Where is that temple today, brothers and sisters? Within. Amongst you as an individual and amongst God's people, plural. That's where it is. See, we owe our fallen nature nothing but to put it to death. It never did you any favours, never. Your fallen nature never did you any favours. Each day, life and death, blessing and curse are set before us. Trying to please, serve and gratify our fallen nature can only deny us the life that Christ died to bring us. And that's too big a price to pay. This has got nothing to do with salvation. It's got everything to do with being free and living life to its fullness and serving God and seeing where that takes us on this journey. We need the Holy Spirit working in us and he requires our participation. So the dilemma we are in, although we're not in a dilemma really, guys, or better, the choice we must make daily is either to put off our fallen nature and embrace the life of Christ or miss the potential we are given to live life in the fullness in Him. So I just want to finish with this. We need to stand with Joshua and saying, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, the choice is a no-brainer. But Lord, the flesh, our fallen nature, constantly rises its ugly head to rob us of all the things that you have brought us. Father, we have the power to be uh, quick to hear, slow to speak. We have the power to control our anger and make it only godly. We have the power to control and bridle our tongue. But we confess again today, Father, we cannot do this in our own strength. But we thank you, Lord, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why you did it, I have no idea, Father, but you saw fit to put your amazing glory within each of us as individuals and within us as a church. We take joy in that, Father. May you get out of it even just a small portion of what you've invested into each of us so we can change our lives and change the world around us. We ask your help and your grace and your power to do this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.